If it's Tuesday, it's one of the biggest stages in American politics, the State of the Union, as President Biden braces for a fight with Congress over the fate of the country and the future of his presidency. Plus, the death toll surpasses 7,000 in Turkey and Syria as emergency services and international aid groups rush to save lives in the aftermath of that catastrophic earthquake. And the Pentagon admits to surveillance blind spots that allowed spy balloons to fly undetected over U.S. airspace as officials comb through what remains of the Chinese spy balloon. Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I'm Kristen Welker in Washington, where we are just hours away from President Biden's State of the Union address tonight in front of a joint session of Congress and the American people. It comes at a pivotal moment in his presidency as he addresses a divided Congress for the first time while laying the groundwork for his own reelection bid. Two senior officials tell NBC News the president will seek to reaffirm a core promise of his 2020 campaign, restoring the soul of the nation. He will also unveil a new message, finish the job. And one White House official tells us the president will talk about the progress the country has made in recovering from the pandemic since he took office. The president himself says he views his objective tonight in fairly straightforward terms. Here's some of what he told reporters yesterday ahead of the address. I want to talk to the American people and let them know the state of affairs, what's going on, why, what I'm looking forward to working on from this point on, what we've done, and uh, just have a conversation with the American people. The president will be having that conversation with a nation that, according to recent polling, is unhappy with the current state of affairs and his handling of the economy. Tonight's address also comes amid mounting criticism from Republicans over the Biden administration's response to the Chinese spy balloon that crossed the U.S. before being shot down. The president is also facing questions from both parties over immigration policy and the situation at the border, as well as pressure over his handling of classified documents found in his Wilmington home and former D.C. office. House Republican leaders spoke to reporters today offering a scathing preview of their anticipated response to President Biden's address tonight. Listen. Tonight in his State of the Union, Joe Biden must answer for his failed leadership. No amount of spin this evening will change the reality so many Americans are facing. They are worse off now than they were two years ago. That is a fact. The state of our union is struggling under the weight of President Biden's far-left extremist agenda that is hurting families across this country. Joining me now with the very latest from the White House is NBC's senior White House correspondent, Kelly O'Donnell. Kelly, thanks so much for being here this afternoon on a really big day. So what does the White House see as their greatest challenge tonight? Well, good to be with you, Kristen. And it is hard, perhaps, for some of our viewers to realize just how big the stakes are here. There's the historical context for why these speeches are so critical. And it is really engaging all of government in trying to lay out a plan ahead for the remaining two years of this term. And for the president, it's the political stakes trying to deal with a new Congress led in part by on the House side by Kevin McCarthy, a new speaker, and of course, trying to find a way to 
get some things done. You've talked about finish the job being a key component of the messaging tonight. Can this president continue to work with some Republicans when everyone recognizes that there are uh, political dates ahead that will be critical and some tough terrain? So a big challenge will be dealing with the perception gap, as this White House believes it has some very strong economic data to talk about, the jobs numbers and how that has been a real strength for uh, this White House, some legislative achievements that they believe are paying dividends and will continue to uh, to benefit the American people going forward. And yet there are many Americans who are feeling the pinch of inflation and prices that have been uh, difficult in their family budgets, not feeling comfortable about where the economy is, uh, despite the fact that the threat of recession seems to be held off and the co country coming out of uh, the COVID worst days, it would appear, and the uh, job picture being so strong and some of the other fundamentals of the economy looking good. But people aren't feeling all of that. So that perception gap is out there. How can the president try to bridge that? We're told he wants to sound optimistic. He wants to uh, project a certain maturity about how he wants to govern in dealing with especially Republicans who feel uh, that they have some power and some wind at their back, reclaiming control of the gavel on the House side. But there are also some big headwinds for the president. Some of the chief things he'd like to achieve, things like uh, trying to get an assault weapons ban or dealing with police reform. Those are very hard to do in this political climate, even though they can be very popular with many Americans across the board. And then, of course, on the world stage, we, we know that foreign policy is not always, depending on the year, uh, a centerpiece of this kind of a speech. But we've just seen how we've had days of the Chinese spy balloon issue. And even though that is its own sort of event, it signifies uh, the tension that exists between the U.S. and China, which is an ongoing uh, problem on the economy and on uh, security for this country because of concerns about Chinese potential aggression toward Taiwan and how they've been helpful to Russia. So, so many issues, so much at stake for a president whose popularity is not where they want it to be, considering some of the things they think they've achieved in these first two years. Kristen? Yeah, and, and Kelly, you're so right to point that out. That is going to loom large over this address tonight. You and I are going to be watching the optics so closely. And part of the optics, of course, are the guests in the first lady's box. It's going to tell us a lot about the priorities and the messaging that we might hear from this president. Kelly, what stands out to you just briefly uh, about who's invited tonight? Well, the guests are always a clue to the message, and they are about uh, an emotional impact moment in the speech. And so you will have two families uh, that are uh, representing uh, the issue of gun violence and uh, also uh, police uh, interactions. Uh, so that's the Tyree Nichols family and uh, the young man who stopped the gunman in Monterey Park. They will be uh, in the First Lady's box. You'll also have representatives who will be about the cancer story in America. We know how personal that is to the president, and he wants to achieve more when it comes to uh, defeating cancer, and that'll be reflected in the box tonight as well. All Kristen? Right. Kelly O'Donnell, both of us gearing up for a late night. Thank you so much for joining me. And joining me now on set is Keisha Lance Bottoms, former mayor of Atlanta and now the senior advisor for public engagement in the Biden administration. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about what we expect to hear tonight. 
White House officials say that President Biden wants to deliver an optimistic message tonight on the economy, on the state of the union. How does he sell that message when 71 percent of Americans say the country's headed in the wrong direction? Well, I think we have to remember we've been through a tough time in this country. You don't just turn on the switch and everybody suddenly feels better. The past few years with the pandemic and death and so much that we have experienced globally is still weighing very heavily on people. But the good news is that there is good news coming out of this administration. When you look at the uh, economy, you look at how strong those numbers are, record unemployment rate for African-Americans, jobs created, and the list goes on and on. American Rescue Plan funds, I can speak directly to that as a former mayor. That was a game changer for cities and counties across America. So there's a story to be told, um, but also there's more work to be done. The president's going to remind us that there is a job that needs to be completed. So it's understandable that people may not feel great right now, uh, but we believe that as people begin to see and feel the impact of the changes that this administration has made, then you'll see things shift. And let's talk about the economy. Let's delve into some of those numbers, because as you say, that really is the top issue for so many Americans. And when you look at the polling, only 36 percent of Americans say they approve of the president's handling of the economy. The president is going to say, look at jobs. They're at their highest rate in some 50 years. Why is there this disconnect? Is this a failure in messaging or implementation of his policies? Well, again, I think it just really is based on where we are right now in this country. It's going to take time for us to feel better. But the good news is that there are things that are happening that are changing the lives of Americans. I've been on the ballot a few times, so I know that poll numbers are a snapshot in time. And that's why it's important as a candidate, as someone who's holding office, you don't ever get too high and you don't get too low. You stay focused on the agenda. And for this president, making the economy stronger has been a pillar of, of his agenda. I've been talking to some of the president's allies who say that this next phase needs to focus on implementation, that the infrastructure law, for example, um, the Inflation Reduction Act, Americans aren't feeling that. They aren't feeling that in their everyday lives, in their pocketbooks. Does this administration need to shift focus and, and try to implement the laws that have now been passed more aggressively? Well, I can tell you that as I've had conversations internally just on how we focus public engagement implementation has been the key word. So that's not news to this White House. We know that implementation is important. We know that it's important that people now know that insulin has been capped at $35 a month for seniors. We also know uh, with we, when we talk about infrastructure that people begin to see changes happening in their communities, whether it's the, the bridge repairs or lead pipes being replaced. And there's so many other things that have come into law. And now we know that people have to see it and feel it to know that it's making a difference. But wages have actually not kept pace with inflation. They've gone down effectively since the president took office. Does he bear responsibility for that? 
Well, we know that the president has focused very heavily on the economy. There were many who questioned his policies, but when you but see... But do you think the president should take responsibility to some extent for the fact that wages have not kept up with inflation? Well, I think that there's all responsibility. Responsibility is, is shared by everyone, not just the president, but we have to look at uh, where we are with Congress, with, with policies, as it relates to where our wages are. We have to look at our companies. But the reality is this, 10 million people apply to create small businesses in this country. 12 million new jobs were created, a half million jobs just last month. So it may not be perfect yet, um, but we are on a really solid path to making a difference with the economy. Let's talk about some of the issues looming large over this speech. You have the issue of classified documents, the Chinese spy balloon. Will President Biden directly address the Chinese spy balloon tonight? Well, what the president will talk about, and I haven't seen the speech, the latest draft of the speech. There have been several drafts. Um, it was still being rewritten as late as this afternoon. Uh, but I do know that the president will talk about the need for us to remain strong on the world's Stage. He'll also talk about bringing jobs back to America did from the, China. Did the last draft that you see directly mention the Chinese spy balloon? Well, I didn't see the draft in its entirety, uh, but I do know that when we talk about national security, that's something that the president believes is extremely important. And, you know, we've seen him talk about uh, what his feelings about the spy balloon, why he made the decisions that he did based on information from our national security advisors and we knew there was a spy balloon, which, of course, is very different uh, than what we now know from the previous administration. And, and just the previous administration says they were not aware of that, that, that this intelligence is something new that they're getting. Let me ask you about what Kelly was just talking about, the guests in the First Lady's box. We know that the family members of Tyree Nichols will be there. What will his message be on police reform? And will he say he's open to a compromise, something, for example, that does not include qualified immunity protections for officers? Well, I was in a meeting just last Thursday with the Congressional Black Caucus with the president and the vice president in the Oval Office. And there were a number of things that were discussed as to how we can move the needle. The president has not given up on the George Floyd bill in its entirety. And I don't believe that the caucus has either. Um, but certainly there are things on the table and up for a discussion. So the president has done what he could do with the power of his pen through executive order. And he's willing to give whatever support that needs to be given to Congress to get it over the finish line. President Biden, I am told, is going to repeat the refrain, finish the job tonight, which sounds a lot like a pitch for reelection. Is that going to be his campaign slogan? Well, I can't speak to that, but I do know there is a job to be finished in this term from this White House, and that's what he's going to continue to focus on. I've spoken on. to a lot of Republicans who say what they want to hear tonight from the president is a bipartisan message, given that Congress is now divided, given that Speaker McCarthy will be sitting right behind him. How does finish the job square with a bipartisan message? Will he deliver a bipartisan message? Well, you've watched this president for a long time. You know that in the Senate, he built his career on getting things done in a bipartisan way. Some of the biggest things we've been able to get accomplished in this administration from gun reform, uh, the, the changes in the gun laws uh, to the infrastructure bill, chips. These things have been done through a bipartisan way. So the president's not giving up on that. We just need Republicans in Congress uh, to meet us uh, halfway so we can continue to deliver for the American people. OK, well, we will be watching very closely. Keisha Lance Bottoms, thank you so much for being here. We really Thank appreciate you. the information and you're joining us.
Coming up, the mics are hot and the cameras are on. That was House Speaker McCarthy's warning to Republican members as they gear up to be in the House chamber for tonight's State of the Union. The panel will be here next and we'll have special State of the Union coverage beginning at 8 p.m. right here on NBC News. Now with my colleagues Hallie Jackson and Tom Yamas, Lester Holt and Savannah Guthrie, along with our whole NBC News team, will bring you the president's address at 9 p.m. And then Chuck and I will have post-speech analysis until midnight, including some big newsmaking interviews. So you're going to want to stay up for that. Do not miss it. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Join Hoda Kotb for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Tonight, President Biden finds himself in a somewhat familiar position to the last Democratic president at this same point in his presidency. In 2011, President Barack Obama was also a year out from his reelection campaign and also dealing with a Republican House for the first time. Notably, however, Obama's address that night was delivered as the nation was reeling from the shooting of Arizona Congresswoman Gabby Giffords just a few days prior. Many members of Congress broke tradition and sat with members of the opposing party party to send a message of unity. President Obama marked that gesture in his remarks. Take a listen to that moment. What comes of this moment is up to us. What comes of this moment will be determined not by whether we can sit together tonight, but whether we can work together tomorrow. New laws will only pass with support from Democrats and Republicans. We will move forward together or not at all. For the challenges we face are bigger than party and bigger than politics. Joining me now on set to discuss all of the stakes tonight, Camila DeChalice, congressional reporter for The Washington Post, Maria Teresa Kumar, president and CEO of Voto Latino and an NBC News contributor, and former Illinois Republican Congressman Rodney Davis. Thanks to all of you for being here. Camila, let me start with you and that message that we just heard from former President Obama. It was a message of bipartisanship. It was a call to action. And here, President Biden finds himself for the first time in front of a divided Congress. What are you expecting and what do you think members, lawmakers want to hear from him tonight? We're expecting him to lay out some of his accomplishments that he's achieved since he's gone into the Oval Office. But one of also unity, he knows that he's going to have to have a bipartisan fashion to try to get anything done. And so he's going to try to call on Republicans to also try to meet him across the aisle to get some of his legislative priorities done. Now, whether they will come to that and actually do that, that's another story. But you're going to try to see him to make an attempt because as he knows, 
the House chamber is ruled by Republicans right now, and they're going to need to kind of step up in order to try to get some of his legislative bills passed that he really wants to get done. Yeah, and one of those, Maria Teresa, we know that he is going to renew calls for the George Floyd bill to get done. There just aren't the votes for that. And, and the question for Washington right now, is a compromise piece of legislation possible? We know that the family members of Tyree Nichols are going to be in the audience in the First Lady's section. Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges that Biden has coming in to this uh, State of the Union is that it's been very clear from Speaker McCarthy that he doesn't want to negotiate. He basically has been able to demonstrate that even the debt ceiling is something that he doesn't really believe is something that they should pass forward. So this is an opportunity for Biden to speak directly to the American people and remind them of his accomplishments, absolutely, but also that he has yet to finish the job. And I think that's one of the pieces that he's going to say. It's an opportunity for him to remind the American people where we've been, what he hopes to do, even though there's a lot of you know, friction in, in Congress. But this is the plan if you continue electing Democrats. And it's an opportunity for him to lay out his vision if he decides to run for presidency. And what I find really interesting is that not just what he's going to do tonight, but then when you look at where he's going to go on the road mm -hmm. after. And it's mm -hmm. all key battleground states. He's going to North Carolina. He's going to Florida. He's going to Nevada. And it's feathering out saying, this is my, the beginning of my stump speech, and I want you to listen carefully of what we can do together. Yeah, and part of that stump speech, as you just said, Maria, is going to be uh, finish the job. I mean, how do you think that's going to land tonight? Because it does sound a whole lot like a re-election campaign slogan. Well, at mid-year, you expect a re-election campaign slogan. Clearly, as Maria Teresa said, it's not a coincidence he picked these states. They're very important in the electoral college vote when he runs for president again. But I think the American people are looking for leadership. Polling consistently shows that the American people don't believe that Joe Biden is that leader that they want, that they crave. Donald Trump wasn't that leader. Joe Biden has had an opportunity to be able to grow his support, and he hasn't mm. done that. And frankly, speeches are speeches, but actions speak a lot louder than good talking points in a speech. You take me to my next point, which I think is an important one. What is the impact of this speech? We know that viewership has frankly dropped over the years. President Biden got 38 million views last year, and I believe that the last year former President Trump got about 45, and it's been on a consistent decline, Maria Teresa. How do you make a speech like this matter in this climate? I think it's actually taking a playbook of what the January the 6th commission did so well, recognizing that you have to speak in sound bites so that not everybody's tuning in right now, but what can you actually communicate effectively on social media? And mm. one of the audiences that we haven't talked about that is going to be listening very closely of what have you done for me lately is young people. And it's the youth vote. So I expect them to talk absolutely about uh, student loans. But it's that soundbite of, remember where you were, where are we going, and this is why we need you to be, continue part of this party. Camila, what's your take on this? I mean, do you think that this is an opportunity to garner more support among young people, as Maria Teresa is saying, online? I mean, are people going to be paying attention to this messaging? Absolutely. You know, I've traveled the country talking to voters in the midterm elections. And one of the things they want to see is things that actually get done on student loans, on, let's say, the inflation, on immigration. That was a really big talking point I heard from voters across the country, no matter what state I went to. They want to see what can Biden do to mitigate uh, migrants coming unlawfully into the U.S., but also create pathways for people to come lawfully into the U.S. And so on both sides, not just on conservatives, but also on progressives, they want to see more 
more implementation on, you know, a faster process for people to legally come to the U.S. Mm. And so there's a lot that's riding on the speech, but people want to hear hope. People want to hear that things are going to get done, not just Republicans coming across the aisle, but also Democrats putting a step forward and also introducing legislation that they honestly believe can get passed. That's going to be some of the biggest things we're going to hear, hopefully, him talk about. Yeah, Congressman Davis, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that's going to loom over, and I was just speaking about this with Keisha Lance Bottoms, is this balloon incident. Um, my colleague Lester Holt and I have new reporting that there's legislation coming together on Capitol Hill, bipartisan legislation that would criticize China in the wake of that incident, but not President Biden. We know publicly Republicans have been very critical of President Biden. This is a moment of saying we're going to speak about China in one voice. What do you think his message should be tonight on China? How tough should he be? I think he should be very tough. I think he should address the incident full, full with full force. I mean, the entirety of the American people were watching that balloon, that balloon traverse like Santa Claus on mm. Christmas Eve, coming across all parts of our country. I mean, the decisions needed to be made much, much earlier than they were. And I'm just, I'm, I'm excited that we're seeing bipartisanship on something like this, which would have been an easy punch to the president from Republicans. I think this shows the maturity and the real true bipartisan efforts that Kevin McCarthy is making as speaker right now. Maria Teresa, what, what do you expect to hear? We, we've been reporting that the president's been revising that section of his speech. What do you think his messaging should be? Should he directly mention the balloon? I mean, I think a lot of people want to hear him talk. He about has it. to. I think that one of the reasons why he brought in so much American manufacturing back to the United States is because our dependency on semiconductors and all the electronics coming mm. out of China. And this is part of a national security issue. This is not an isolated incident. And for the American people to take comfort that there is someone at the wheel who understands the sophistication that needs to tackle it, the American people absolutely want to know about the balloon. They want to make sure that at the end of the day, we're safe. And I think this is an opportunity for him to speak directly to his expertise, which is foreign policy. On this matter of bipartisanship, Mary Miller, who you ran against uh, to keep your seat, she won. She's now boycotting the address tonight. What do you make of that? It's, it's not something I would do. I think part of the job of being a member of Congress is when given the opportunity to show up to events like mm. this. Um, in the end, I mean, look, as a member of Congress, trust me, it gets very boring to sit through two-hour speeches on the floor <laughs> of the House, especially when we're conditioned to do everything on 15-minute increments. Yeah. Um, but in the end, uh, I, I found it, especially when I, I first started serving in Congress, very informational to be able to take back what I heard in the speech and then reconcile that with what my constituents' asks and desires were. Uh, let's talk about the GOP response. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, governor of Arkansas. Um, Camila, she is going to come out with some very forceful language tonight based on our reporting. Uh, Hallie Jackson reporting that she's expected to essentially argue that the president's not fit for office. She's going to really highlight the age difference. She's 40 years his senior um, what does that say about where the Republican Party is right now? Obviously, she's the former press secretary of former President Trump. Right. There's no secret. I mean, just given this was very strategic that they asked her to do this. And one being she's the youngest governor in the U.S. right now. So, right. I mean, we've heard from Republicans really trying to make a concerted effort to reach out to more younger voters. And you're going to hear her talk a lot about the Republican talking points, that Biden's really not doing enough, that he should be doing more, and really 
setting the tone of what they want the Republicans to want to accomplish, especially given that there's a presidential election ahead. You know, we know that she's a staunch supporter of Trump, but let's not forget that there may be possible contenders. So she's going to make an argument of, you know, now that Republicans are in control of the House chamber, this is what they're going to do. But just if they can get both chambers and even secure the presidency in the future, She's going to lay out the vision of what they can accomplish if they have full control. And just very quick response from both of you. Is this a way to expand the Republican base, this messaging? We'll see what the message ends up being. I mean, yeah. Look, Governor uh, Huckabee Sanders is is in Arkansas. She's playing to her constituency. But in the end, in the end, not a lot of young people are going to watch this tonight. I'm the father of, 20, of a 26-year-old and two 22-year-olds that had a father for a member of Congress. They're not watching this speech tonight. <laughs> so the message think, is going to be... Very quickly. Yeah, no, I, I think very quickly, one of the things that the Democrats are not effectively following legislatively and policy and the way they're speaking is vouchers and parental choice. Mm. And if you look at the feeds of Sarah Huckabee, Jim Jordan, McCarthy, something that could potentially splinter young mommies of color mm. are going to be whether or not their kids are getting the education they need and it's going to be around voucher systems. And I, I would not be surprised if she actually mentions that in her speech. Oh, well, we will be listening very closely. Thanks to all of you for setting us up for a very big night. Camila, Maria, Teresa, and Rodney, we appreciate it. Up next, catastrophic damage and a soaring death toll. We're live in Turkey with the very latest on the search for survivors as the region reels from yesterday's massive earthquake. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. Search and rescue operations are ongoing in Turkey and Syria today as the two countries grapple with the devastation from two major earthquakes that hit the region early Monday morning. The death toll from the quakes has climbed to over 7,000, with more than 25,000 people injured. We do expect those numbers to keep rising. The president of Turkey said in a speech yesterday that 8,000 people have been saved from the rubble as more than 15,000 search and rescue personnel clear the fallen buildings. Thousands of aid groups and volunteers have answered calls for help in the region. This incredible video taken at Istanbul's airport shows a crowd of aid workers on their way to help the humanitarian search and rescue efforts in southern Turkey. It is just remarkable. NBC's Matt Bradley is on the ground in uh, Adna, Turkey for us. Matt, thank you so much. You are there at this very active scene behind you. Just explain what you are seeing, what you're hearing on the ground in the very latest. My call dropped. Okay, I think we are having some trouble with Matt. Brett, can I Matt, am here. You hear me. Matt, do you hear me? Can you just give us, this is Kristen speaking, can you give us I the very latest oh, on the ground, what you're hearing and seeing behind you? We see this incredibly active scene unfolding behind you, obviously, rescue workers searching for survivors. Yeah, that's right, Kristen. I'm here in Adana in the, the southern part of Turkey. This is not so far from the epicenter of, or what was the epicenter of those two twin seismic shifts that just happened here in Turkey and had, you know, really horrific effects across the border in Syria and really all throughout the region. Now, just in the past 30 minutes, we understand that there has been a flurry of activity here. There's been the discovery of at least one, perhaps several bodies within the, the wreckage there behind me. Now, this 
this is a rescue effort that's been going on for the past 36 hours. And a lot of people here, there isn't much hope anymore that they're going to be finding people alive, particularly in just a monstrous looking scene like the one behind me. And this is the kind of scene that you can see throughout Southern Turkey and Northern Syria. And you know, when we came here a couple of hours ago, we saw hundreds of people. Most of them were folks from just around the neighborhood here in Adana who had come out trying to dig people out, literally with their bare hands, people from beneath this, this uh, wreckage hoping that they would find some people alive. We spoke with some people who said that they had been working all day yesterday, all night last night, and all day today. And there were some professional rescue workers and, and, uh, and you know medical staff who were here, but really we didn't see until just the last several hours a larger number of really professional medical staff and rescue workers who showed up, in addition to one foreign team from Bulgaria who insisted that everybody be silent for what seemed like the better part of an hour, and it looked as though they were using some sophisticated, what Look like sounding equipment in order to try to see if they could find anybody underneath that wreckage. But that was the first foreign team that we've seen so far. We understand now that the United States has sent their own people. They've landed in Ankara and they should be coming here to Adana tomorrow before they fan out, presumably, across the rest of this region, finally using some U.S. power to try to look for, uh, for wounded victims here in southern Turkey. Kristen? We know that aid is so desperately needed. Matt Bradley, please stay safe yourself. Thank you for that reporting. We really appreciate it. I'm joined now by Avril Benoit, the executive director of Doctors Without Borders in the United States. Avril, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I want to just first extend our condolences. I understand that one of your colleagues has been a victim of this horrific earthquake. We are so sorry. Our thoughts are with you. Can you tell us how the other uh, workers are doing and what the past 36 hours have been like? Very difficult situation. Uh, this, this area of northwestern Syria, just to take you uh, for a moment across the border, uh, has very high needs and has for the last 10 years since the beginning of the war. So already you had people living in displacement camps with uh, extreme conditions now with the winter weather, uh, people living outside in the snow. Um, and so the, the big push now for an international aid effort is to be able to uh, bring up the level of attention. Now, we already had a team working in the region when these earthquakes struck. Um, so we were able to mobilize quickly uh, with the funding that we already have, which is not earmarked for any specific emergency, but we had the teams uh, that could treat 200 wounded immediately in the hours after the earthquake happened. We also had uh, uh, a death toll that we counted, uh, 160 deaths confirmed in northern Idlib in particular. Uh, we have a, a burn unit actually in the city of Atna, Atma, and we were able to redeploy uh, our medical team from that burn center uh, to the local hospitals to support with the trauma surgeries that were uh, needed. And uh, in the meantime, we distributed medical kits and other supplies to 23 health facilities. So this is all uh, really with a, just giving you a, a zoom in on that area of northwestern Syria. Yeah, it's just staggering the needs there and the challenges, as you say, for a country that has been dealing with this war for now more than a decade. We know that 45 countries have offered aid. Do you think that 
the help that is needed is getting there, or do countries need to do more? We just heard Matt Bradley report that the U.S. teams had just arrived in Ankara. They have not yet gotten to the the zone that has been hardest hit. Uh, is aid getting there fast enough? Well, it's going to be very difficult for a number of reasons. Uh, it will definitely require a major international lift. Uh, but remember, even to go uh, and offer support to that area of Syria, there's there's one crossing, one road uh, where uh, organizations have permission to bring in supplies uh, from Syria, uh, from Turkey into Syria, that is approved by the United Nations uh, to transport uh, the needed uh, emergency supplies. So that's that that's going to be a tight situation right there. We have also um, a good sense from our experience at Doctors Without Borders as a, an emergency responder in situations like this and in other earthquakes of the kind of medical needs that will be required. We know that the hospitals are overwhelmed. Some have been destroyed. There was one entire maternity center that had to evacuate very quickly uh, the mothers and the, the newborns uh, that were there to bring them to a safer structure. And of course, with the aftershocks, we know that uh, there is always a risk that the integrity of other structures that are taking that overflow uh, can be very risky. So everyone's going to be very nervous for quite a while. And in the meantime, you've got surgeries that need to happen, high risk of infection if people are living out in the elements and not necessarily having access to sanitary conditions. You've got a mm. dire of uh, continuation of other medical services for for example, those with chronic diseases. We've got the mental health component, rehabilitation, post-operative care in all its realms. Um, so this is going to be a major, major lift for the international aid community. And we have less than a minute left. Can you give us a sense of your biggest concern about the long-term mm -hmm. impact that this devastating earthquake, these series of devastating earthquakes could have? Well, already uh, we are uh, concerned that it will be in the news today and forgotten in a short number of days, that we'll, the news cycle will move on when there is a need to rebuild the hospital system, uh, to be able to provide that long-term care for people who are injured in this earthquake. Um, these are not quick recoveries. And uh, we know from all our experience uh, of being on the ground uh, that the management of uh, the medical needs will be quite important. And the other thing to remember is that Syria is a country where, as, as I mentioned, you've got millions of displaced people, widespread destruction already from the war. So the infrastructure is not even necessarily at the level in and around Idlib and Aleppo uh, to be able to really uh, provide all the necessary supports to the existing health care that has managed to continue through this earthquake. So we've got close to 500 staff in northwest Syria, and they are just leveraging all their expertise, all their effort uh, to be able to respond and do their best under, under the circumstances. Well, we are all so grateful for Doctors Without Borders and the work that you are doing there, the work that you do all around the world, and our condolences again for the loss of your colleague. We really appreciate your joining us under these very difficult circumstances. Avril Benoit, thank you. Thank you. After the break, a top Pentagon official admits to a, quote, awareness gap that's allowed previous spy balloons to fly undetected in U.S. airspace. What that means and why it's raising new surveillance concerns next. You're watching Meet the Press now.
Welcome back. A top Pentagon official made a jarring acknowledgement when speaking with reporters yesterday. The commander of NORAD said that the military had failed to detect previous spy balloons, calling it a, quote, awareness gap that needs to be resolved. He described this latest incident tracking a Chinese spy balloon as it traversed the U.S. as an opportunity to potentially close any intel gaps. It comes as the Pentagon today released new photos of its recovery of the balloon off the coast of Carolina, the administration seeks to learn more about China's surveillance operations. Joining me now on set is NBC News global security reporter Dan DeLuce, and I should say off the coast of uh, South Carolina, where all of this unfolded. Dan, thank you so much for being here. So what are we learning about why the Pentagon didn't initially detect these spy balloons? Apparently, they didn't immediately detect them during the Trump administration. There were three such balloons. That's right. So it's a question, is this an intelligence failure? I think they would say no, but it was almost like this problem hiding in plain sight. This is this really low-tech tool that, you know, has been around hundreds of years, and they were not looking for it. Our radars and our air defenses are set up to look for incoming missiles or aircraft. And this is like something almost considered static or chatter, but not anymore. I think Congress is really going to push for more answers about why they didn't spot these before I identified them. They've had to go back and look at unidentified sightings and say, oh, that was a Chinese balloon. And lawmakers are expecting briefings on the intelligence and everything that happened here. Are we learning anything about the intelligence that may have been gleaned from this balloon? Not yet, but the Pentagon is saying they learned a lot just tracking the balloon across the U.S. Mm. They say they collected quite a bit of information that was valuable. And now they're cautiously optimistic that these Navy divers are going to come up with some of the spy gear that's in the water off the Carolina coast. And they're hoping it's going to be relatively intact. And that's going to be another insight into this Chinese balloon program that, by the way, is global. They're saying that these are all over the world. And the U.S. is now talking to other countries about this, allies and partners. And they're trying to confer about what they've seen when these balloons have come into their airspace. And just finally, Dan, the administration obviously waited until after the balloon was over the water to shoot it down. The president got criticized by Republicans for not shooting it down sooner. What sorts of discussions are being had about developing the technology to remove a balloon once it's over U.S. airspace? There's going to be a huge focus on this, I think. How do we better detect this? And it partly will be training or partly it will be some technological solution. There's also going to have to be a policy. Do we shoot it down immediately upon seeing it? So I think that's going to be a big discussion going forward. And I think Congress is going to be pushing very hard for answers. All right, Dan DeLuce, thank you so much. Great to see you. Great information. Up next, my one-on-one interview with Republican Senator Joni Ernst. She'll join me here on set in just a moment. We'll talk about the State of the Union. You're watching Meet the Press now. Mr. President, Congressional Republicans are ready to act, to save our country, and to make America stronger. I hope you will join us. Welcome back. That was House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who will have one of the best seats in the House for tonight's State of the Union. He will be seated right behind the president this evening, where Nancy Pelosi was last year. His presence alone will be a clear reminder that President Biden is facing a divided Congress. Joining me now on set is another top Republican in Washington, Iowa Senator Joni Ernst. Senator Ernst, thank you for being here. Oh, a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. I know it's a busy day and a big night. So let's dive right in. What do you want to hear from President Biden? 
Biden tonight. Well, I would love to hear President Biden express to the Congress and to the American people how he will work with initiatives from both sides of the aisle, bringing together a divided Congress. Because I'm the ranking member, this Congress on the Small Business Committee, I would love to hear him address issues that affect our small business owners. And as my guest tonight, I do have a small business owner from Iowa, a young female entrepreneur who has her own popcorn company. Uh, but she will join me, and, and she has shared some thoughts on what she hopes President Biden says as well. Well, we know that the economy is going to be a key focus tonight. He's going to tout what he sees as the bright spots in the economy, the fact that the unemployment rate is at a 50-year high. He's apparently also going to float a $35 monthly cap on the cost of insulin. Is that something that you could see yourself supporting? Well, there are a number of initiatives that have been out there for years, and one of those that addresses not just insulin, but all different types of pharmaceuticals was Chuck Grassley's plan with Ron Wyden a number of years ago to decrease the cost of pharmaceuticals to all Americans, and yet that was rejected by the Democrats. It wasn't politically expedient for them to move that bill under President Trump. So I do think we need to go back and revisit all of these plans and make sure we're not just looking at insulin, but all sorts Sounds of Sounds like you're open to it. Is that a you know, potentially? I, yes? I will look at whatever proposals come forward, but I just want to warn everybody, too, that it's not just insulin. We have to find a, a collective response that is a, one that we can work with that can be sustained in the long term. And I think Chuck Grassley had a great plan to okay. do that. All right. Let's move on to one of the big issues that uh, is going to loom over this State of the Union address, and that is going to be this Chinese spy balloon. Now, the White House said that they could not shoot it down until it was over the water because they didn't want the debris to hurt anyone or anything on the ground. Do you accept that reasoning, and do you think that the White House was right to wait for it to be over the water to shoot it down? Well, I have had the opportunity to visit with members out at the DOD and those involved in the decision-making process. And I believe wholeheartedly that they were uh, looking at this as a, a way to protect the American people. I think they were evaluating this uh, Chinese spy balloon. Uh, but unfortunately, we didn't see the transparency necessary coming from the administration. If this truly was not a threat to the American people, people, then that should have been put out by the president, reassuring the American people that everything is going to be okay. We've got it under control. They didn't bring it up until it was spotted by innocent Joe Montanan out there that uh, happened to see it. Do you think that some of your Republican colleagues, though, were went too far in criticizing the president? For example, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott said President Biden's actions were a dereliction of duty. Was that too hasty without having all of the information? Well, I think that given the information at that time, I don't know that that was too hasty. Um, I do think the president has failed. He has a history of failures when it comes to national security issues. And so, again, this was an example of it very well could have been, still could be, a national security interest. And we don't know that because we haven't had those briefings and we haven't had the president be straight up with the American people. Can you say that he failed until you've had a briefing, though, until you have all the information? I can say he 
failed on transparency. Obviously, when citizens are able to spot an object in the sky that has been followed by, whether it was the administration, our American military, and they're not releasing information to the public, either as a warning or a caution, or everything's okay, um, then it is a failure of this administration. Let's move on. You just returned to a trip from the border. This is not your first time being there. What was your assessment uh, how did it compare to the last time you were there? Well, it was very concerning. I, I led a bicameral delegation to the San Diego port of entry, as well as to Mexico City. And it was concerning because the San Diego port of entry is the epicenter of where fentanyl is coming into our country. Fentanyl is coming in from Mexico and poisoning our communities, our children. And so we do have to address the situation. Unfortunately, we haven't had the pairings from uh, Democrats or the administration to work with us on securing the border and really cracking down on crime and the fentanyl crisis. What do you make of the president's recent moves as it relates to the border? He has gotten more new commitments, I should say, for Mexico to take in about 30,000 migrants for mu uh, per month. He's also making asylum laws tougher. Do you support what he's done? Do you think it goes far enough? I think they're Band-Aid steps. And we have seen this through many administrations, just Band-Aid steps. We really do need to figure out the asylum processes here in the United States. Um, we need to work with the Mexican government. Um, but we've got to do much, much more to protect our nation. Is there anything that you think realistically can get done in a bipartisan fashion in these next two years on the issue of immigration or asylum, given the climate right now, given that 2024 is looming so large? I would say it is going to be a very difficult environment to get anything done, whether it is border security or whether it is new immigration policy. But I think both sides should be able to acknowledge we have a lot of work to do on both. And acknowledging that, maybe we can come together and really find some solutions. Let's talk a little bit uh, about the Republican response tonight. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, governor. Yeah. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the youngest governor in the United States, is going to be delivering the response. We are told she's going to say that the president is unfit for office. Is that a bipartisan message? Does that help Republicans ahead of 2024? Well, I am excited that Sarah Sanders is going to be delivering that Republican address uh, to the president's State of the Union. I had that great privilege and honor in 2015. My own governor, Kim Reynolds, uh, delivered that address last year. And you see yet another strong Republican female stepping up to the plate. Sarah Sanders will do an incredible job. And I think she will counter what the president delivers in his address. Do you have any concerns that Governor Sanders might stoke what have been referred to as the culture wars? She's obviously one of her first acts as governor is to ban the term Latinx. Do you think that is effective politics ahead of 2024? I think what she will do is just communicate what is on Arkansas's minds, uh, what everyday uh, man or woman on the street in Arkansas is feeling. She is going to project that. And I think she will have a 
very strong message, again, being the youngest governor ever, female leader in the Republican Party. And I would find that people will probably find a very inspiring message. We're almost out of time. Is there any scenario in which you would throw your hat into the 2024 ring for president? (laughs) Will you endorse this time around in 2016? You did not endorse in the primary. No. And Chuck Grassley and I both uh, have decided that we stay out of uh, those politics. Iowa remains first in the nation for Republicans. We're very proud of that. And in order to preserve that status, we will remain neutral through the caucuses. We have 30 seconds left. Your message to Democrats who want South Carolina to be the first state. I would say that our Iowa Democrats uh, really put forward some unique ideas and they supported diverse candidates. If you look at Barack Obama, if you look at Pete Buttigieg, uh, I thought our Democrats did very well. Unfortunately, they don't have the first in the nation caucus. Senator Ernst, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for being with us this hour. NBC News will have coverage throughout the night of the State of the Union. And Chuck and I will be back at 11 p.m. Eastern with special analysis after the speech. But first, NBC News Now coverage continues with Hallie Jackson. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now. 